the Siege of New Hampshire series by McRowland. Book Two, Siege Fall. Chapter Two, The Lineman. Ah! Susan let out a small yell as she ran around the corner of the garden. Close at her heels ran the flock of chickens. Throw some feed to one side, Martin yelled from the woodpiles. Susan expelled a handful of scratch grains as if casting out a demon. The chickens ran for the scattered seed. They're attacking me. You saw it, Susan exclaimed. Martin tried not to laugh. That's not attacking. That's enthusiasm. Get ready to throw another handful. They're almost done. Susan quickly grabbed and threw another handful, overhand, going for distance. The chickens ran further away to peck at the new prizes. You didn't tell me they'd be so aggressive. They just love their breakfast. You're carrying the magic orange bucket that makes you the official bringer of breakfast, and instantly their favorite person. Bah, favorite. I don't know if I want to be that close to them. Their feet are so, she shuddered, <laughs> dirty. Then maybe you should take the bucket inside before they start looking for more. They've had enough anyhow. I'll be in shortly when I'm done with these tarps. I could go for another cup of coffee. As Martin sipped his coffee at the table, Margaret came upstairs with a tattered box in her arms. I found it, she said. I knew I'd seen our old fireplace set somewhere out in the shed. It was buried behind Christmas decorations, but I found it. Why were you looking for that? Martin asked. Is one of ours broken? Oh, no, it's for the walkers. They haven't used their wood stove for years, and they think they gave away their tools. Lance is getting the stove back in shape, but they need a poker and tongs and such. We haven't been using our old set, so I told Miri I'd bring it over. They need more kindling, too. Well, that's cool. I'm glad somebody gets some use out of it, Martin said. I'll help you carry over some kindling when we get home from the meeting. It's up at Town Hall. Starts at nine, remember? I've got some coffee in the thermos. You can get your coat. I can't go to any meetings, Martin. I promised to bring Miri and Lance those tools and some kindling. They want to make a test fire this morning, check for leaks. Then I have to go help Jess with her kids. She's been feeling poorly lately, and I figured to take her over a box of cereal and a couple of jars of jam. What? Yesterday you were just saying that we... Martin was about to remind her that she said they'd run out of food, but Susan was listening, and he didn't want her to feel any more like a burden than she already did. Do we have enough jam to be giving it away? He tried to use emphasis to imply the problem that they had both discussed without saying anything more. Margaret understood. She glanced at Susan. We can only eat so much jam, Martin. We have enough jam to last three years. Okay, but still, giving food away? You just said... Oh, all right. How about if I trade her for a can of tuna or something? Well, yeah, I guess that's better. But Jam can wait until after the meeting, Martin insisted. Come on, it'll be like old times. We might learn something about what's going on. I still can't go, Martin. I promised these other people I'd help them. I simply cannot let them down. I told them I'd be over this morning. Maybe I could go? Susan asked reluctantly. What? Margaret was startled. I mean, if it's okay with you, Susan faced Margaret. I filled up all the water buckets, put more on the stove to heat, and hauled in some more wood. 
Susan pointed to the full wood rack beside the stove. I really don't know what else to do around here. Margaret's dilemma left her short for words. It's just that, continued Susan. You'll all be gone helping neighbors, so I'd be here all by myself, and, well, I've never been to a real town meeting before. Susan continued to plead her case before the judge. Heck, I've never voted for anything before. I mean, what's the point in Massachusetts, right? I'd kind of like to see if, you know, a small-town meeting actually is real democracy, or what. I'll sit way in the back, and I won't make a sound, honest. Inner struggle continued to play across Margaret's face. She had painted herself into a corner. Martin knew she had little fondness for civic matters and felt much more fond of helping others. On the other hand, such meetings were typically a husband-and-wife event on the social level. "'Are you sure you can't come?' Martin coaxed Margaret. "'I'd like it if you came.' "'But I promised Miri and Jess,' Margaret said, with a bit of whine in her voice. "'Ah, I understand,' Martin sighed. He had hoped she'd adjust her schedule, but he knew how seriously she took her personal commitments. "'I could come and help you at the neighbor's,' Susan said to Margaret. Her tone was a bit less than enthused. Margaret's dilemma got more complicated. Martin recognized the little sideways glance in her eyes, a subtle gesture of impatience that he had seen many times when their kids were young and wanted to help with the baking or the sewing. Martin had also noticed that neither woman ever used each other's names when they spoke to each other. No, said Margaret, that won't be necessary. I can manage. I suppose you might as well go to the meeting, the lesser of two evils. Susan quickly stifled a smile. Oh, okay, I'll sit way in the back, she tried to reassure Margaret, and I'll take notes so you'll know what they talked about. Margaret gave Martin a weary glance that he knew to mean, Oh, brother. That would be fine. You'd better get going if the meeting starts at nine. Martin, if you could get the wagon out first, I'd appreciate it. While Martin and Susan walked up the dirt road toward town, Susan tried not to walk too closely beside Martin. I kind of did it again, didn't I? I could tell she wasn't happy about my coming to the meeting, but I would just have been sitting around the house doing nothing, she pled her case before a different judge. I know, said Martin. She might have come, too, if she didn't have her commitments. To himself, he muttered, she's always got her commitments. As they approached the electrical substation, they were coming up behind a bucket truck parked on the left side of the road and in front of the fence. Martin looked for workers inside the fence, but saw none. As they came alongside the truck, Martin could see through the passenger window that there was no one sitting in the cab. The driver's door appeared to still be open. I wonder if this is abandoned. He wasn't sure why he whispered, but it seemed appropriate. He walked cautiously around the rear of the truck toward the open driver door. The chain-link fence was still wide open. That was very unusual. Inside the fence, he could see the charred paint on two of the big transformers. The air still held the stink of burnt rubber and the tart smell of ozone. Whatever took down the grid clearly included the little substation on Martin's road. Susan gasped. Martin spun around. His eyes followed her stare. Two booted legs rested on the ground, heels dug into the dirt. 
the driver sat on the truck's running board, leaning back against the door jamb. His arms hung limp at his sides, head back, mouth open wide. A scorched gray laptop and clipboard lay in his lap. Is he... Susan's whisper was barely audible. Martin shrugged. Had the man been electrocuted? Martin stepped a few inches further from the truck, in case it was still hot. He scanned overhead for signs of dangling wires. There were none. He bent down to look under the truck. No wires there either. The power had been out for days, so there shouldn't be any power in any of the downed lines, but better safe than sorry. He wondered when the man had been electrocuted. The blackened transformers and scorched laptop testified to great power at some point. Perhaps the man died days before. If he had, then why was he not dead on the ground inside the fence? Perhaps the man got a mortal jolt inside the fence and staggered to die at his truck. Martin slowly circled closer to get a better look. The man's clothes weren't burned, nor were there any marks on his gloved hands. The laptop had smoky scorch marks around the ports on the side. Did the scorched laptop mean he died on Monday when the power went out? The man didn't look like he had been dead for days, although Martin realized he really didn't know what that would look like. Perhaps the cool weather and cold nights preserved the body. Martin leaned closer to see if there were burn marks on the man's face when the big man suddenly snorted and sat up. Martin let out a yelp and jumped back, only to whack his shoulder on the open truck door. "'What? What are you doing?' the man asked as he blinked and looked around. Uh, nothing, nothing. Uh, I was just checking on you. I thought you were, uh, dead or, or something. The man looked around, then slumped against the door jam again. Oh, man, I'm still in Cheshire. No, I ain't dead. Feel halfway there, though. The big man pulled off his gloves, pushed off his hard hat, and let out a long yawn. Ah, oh, what is today? Don't tell me it's Saturday. Uh, it's Friday, said Martin. Friday morning. How long have you been here? The big man let out another long, shuddering yawn. Oh, I got here last night. Been all over the state. Was in Milford yesterday. I've been up since Wednesday. Must have fallen asleep. Uh, well, I've got some coffee in my thermos, said Martin. What, you want a cup? Oh, man, I'd give my firstborn for a cup of coffee about now. Martin poured half a cup into the thermos top and handed it to the lineman. Oh, geez, thanks. The lineman took a long, loud sip. Ah. Martin pointed to the scorched equipment inside the chain-link fence. So is the damage pretty bad? The man looked at the substation for a moment, then resumed slurping. Oh, yeah, it's bad. That overload took out your transformer there and some relays. That's almost nothing compared to what else I've seen. I've been all over. Milton, Concord, Exeter. They sent us out right away on Monday morning to check out to see what might have been damaged. But it's been the darndest thing. Lots of these substations got overloaded, Martin asked. Oh, yeah, that. But weird stuff, too, said the lineman. He handed the empty cup back to Martin. Thanks. Yeah, Newington Station and Portsmouth had its burners crap out. Schiller lost a boiler due to overpressure, valve issue. AES blew out a boiler, too, and both burners wouldn't shut off. My buddy Jasper is up in Colebrook. He said their little hydro station didn't blow up, 
but most of the links and transformers did. Bow Station is usually offline, just there for peak loads, so it wasn't running when all this happened. But when they fired it up, one of their burners went crazy, so they had to shut it all down. Things going crazy? What about Seabrook? Martin asked. He realized that he'd never thought of a plan B for what to do if they were forced to evacuate because of reactor trouble at Seabrook. They could quickly pack up a couple of suitcases, gather up some food and water, add their camping gear to the emergency bags in his truck within like 15 minutes and evacuate. Problem was, he had no prearranged place to travel to. They didn't have enough gas to get to any relatives several states away. Ah, nah, Seabrook is fine. Since that Fukushima thing put a scare into them, they've added backup systems for backup systems to keep the core cool and shut her down proper. By noon Monday, they went into shutdown mode. Good thing they had their own generators for the pumps. Martin was relieved, but his lack of an evacuation plan nagged at him. He was ashamed to realize that he was rather late for trying to develop one. With the grid down, and just about everything becoming scarce, they were committed to hunkering down at home. Uh, how long do you think it'll take to get things fixed? Martin asked. He tried to sound optimistic. Uh, a couple of months? Uh, maybe three? The lineman shook his head gravely. Oh, no way. Too much stuff fried. Nobody's got that many spares. People could maybe cobble together some of the unbroken parts and get a small section back online. That's what I've been doing for the past couple of days. Not repairing anything, just assessing what we got left that's workable, uh, which ain't much. As the lineman stood up, his clipboard and laptop clattered to the ground. Martin stooped over to pick up the laptop for him, but the man raised his hand. Ah, never mind. That thing's toast. It was my old one anyway. I tried a diagnostic hookup to the panel in there last night, but I thought there might be something hinky with the board, so I used my old one instead of the new one. Something was hinky. The overage probably melted across between the batteries, I guess. Blew it out. He kicked the scorched laptop, which skittered across the gravel parking lot and into the tall grass. Got no time to haul around dead junk anyhow. Well, we're on our way up to a meeting at Town Hall, Martin said. This all sounds like something people should know. You think you could come by and tell them what you told us about the extent of the damage? No can do. Only official spokesmen make public statements. So, all that stuff I told you didn't come from me, understand? At my age, I can't afford to get fired for making public statements. He climbed into his truck and turned on his radio. Unit 34 to base. Unit 34 checking in. The radio crackled some gibberish. Roger, base. Done at Cheshire 2507. I'm on my way now. He started up his truck. I gotta go. I'm supposed to been in Exeter an hour ago. Thanks for the coffee, though. <laughs> Take it easy. They waved and watched him drive slowly up the dirt road and out of sight. At the century-old town hall, Martin and Susan fell in line with the column of people who shuffled up the wide wooden stairs to the second-floor auditorium. The landing before the double doors was congested with chatting twosomes and threesomes. Some conversations were in hushed and worried tones, some slightly angrier, judging from the staccato gesturing. Hmm, not as cold in here as I expected, said Martin. 
a pair of kerosene heaters sat in the front corners of the room. They took some of the chill off, but everyone still wore their coats and hats. It feels good just to be out of the wind, said Susan. Several rows of wooden folding chairs were lined up on the hardwood floor. Half were filled with the less chatty residents who sat quietly with arms folded or hands in pockets. Many people were still standing and conversing around the periphery of the room. Most of the faces were new to Martin, except for the few that he had gotten to know recently. Holly Baldwin and her husband sat in front. Jen, the owner of Jasmine, was seated beside them. Walter and Sally sat in the second row. The middle and back rows were filled with younger couples in down jackets and colorful ski wear. Martin spotted a couple of open seats on the left side. He pointed them out to Susan. Susan hesitated. Uh, I, I told her I'd sit in the back. What if she asks me where I sat? Martin smiled sympathetically. Life in a minefield. He could easily imagine Margaret quizzing him, too. He realized it was best for keeping the fragile peace that they didn't sit together. Yeah, probably best. I'm going over on the left side there, by the windows. In front of the old auditorium stage stood two long folding tables, behind which sat two of Cheshire's three selectmen, Mike Wilder and Drew Haddock. Police Chief Berg and Fire Chief Anton sat at opposite ends. The town clerk sat next to the fire chief, her yellow pad ready to take notes. Jeff Landers, chairman of the board, made his way through the crowd. He looked like Santa, in summer vacation mode, less round, and his white beard trimmed shorter. Landers took his seat in the middle of the table and wrapped his gavel on the plastic table to call the meeting to order. The dull plastic thuds had none of the commanding dignity of the loud whacks on a hardwood desk. It took several rappings to quiet down the myriad conversations. Everyone, everyone, we'd like to get started, began Landers. The buzz of conversations faded away. Thanks for coming, everyone. As some of you know, we postponed our regular weekly selectman meeting due to the outage. There won't be any meetings of the Planning Board or Conservation Commission, Zoning Board, or any of the committees until further notice. In fact, most town business is on hold for the time being. So, if you had a hearing or review before any of the boards, all business is currently tabled. Come and see me later. What are you going to do about all of this, Jeff? asked a woman seated in the front row. She was tall and slender, with long gray hair. We'll get to that, Candace. Before we get started, I'd like to make a few ground rules understood, since I can see quite a few new faces in the audience today. There's no PA system, so anyone who wishes to speak, please address the chair. When recognized, stand, state your name, and street, so everyone knows who you are. Then, make your statement. Speak loudly, so everyone can hear you. Now, you first, sir. Landers pointed his gavel at a young, bearded man in a middle row. Uh, Justin Filson? Willow Lane? Uh, can you tell us what's going on? Uh, why is the power out? There's no real news on the radio. Uh, how long is this going to last? Our house is getting really cold. Thank you, Mr. Filson. We have not heard anything from the utilities or from Concord, for that matter, so we don't know anything for sure. We do know that the power's out all across New England and many other states, 
so it's not just us. Other towns all seem to be in the same boat we are. Chief? Landers gestured to the police chief. Thanks, Jeff. Yes, we are in radio contact with neighboring departments. They are all pretty busy implementing emergency procedures and dealing with the traffic and accidents and such. The significant development that I'd like to make you all aware of is that Area 911 service, which was operating until yesterday, is now offline. This news caused a ripple of murmurs in the back rows. A young man in a blue-down jacket raised his hand. Landers nodded to him. Adam Dunnan, Peachtree Circle. If we can't call 911, what are we supposed to do if something goes wrong? His tone had an accusing edge to it. His wife nodded in support. I plan to have at least one man patrolling in a cruiser as long as our fuel holds out. We can cover every street and road in the town at least twice a day. If you have a problem, you can flag down our officer when he comes by. That's it, complained Dunnan. If my wife gets sick or an intruder breaks into our home, we're just supposed to stand out by the road and wait for a policeman? Or you can come up to the station. We will have someone in the office 24-7. What? Dunnan was dumbfounded. His momentary silence was an opening for others. You might just have to take care of things for yourself, said a middle-aged man in a plaid canvas coat. He sat a couple of rows ahead of Dunnan. Landers wrapped his gavel. Pete, you just heard me repeat the rules. Pete stood. Oh, all right. Peter Connors. Harris Lake Road, Mr. Chairman, I would suggest that all residents be prepared to take care of themselves instead of waiting for someone else to come and help them. And just what is that supposed to mean? complained Dunnan. A few other young residents around him made supporting murmurs. Medical kit for injuries? Buckshot for intruders, said Pete. That's what I mean. The rest of the crowd burst into murmuring. Martin could see that some were shocked at the suggestion of do-it-yourself measures. Others nodded in agreement. Landers rapped his gavel a few more times. Candace stood to be recognized and interrupt the budding argument. Landers looked relieved and nodded to her. Mr. Chairman, I think what this young man was asking is, what will the town be doing to take care of its unfortunate residents, who, through no fault of their own, find themselves in very difficult circumstances? As she turned to speak to the audience, Martin got a better look at her. She was thin, her skin was deeply creased with many smile lines, from too many years in the sun. Her long gray hair was pulled back in a flower-child sort of style. Her broad smile straddled the line between compassion and condescension. She was playing to the crowd. Thank you, Candace, Landers said flatly. There's not much we can do about restoring power or heating anyone's home. We will, after this meeting, be opening up the school gym as a shelter. We have some cots and blankets, but realistically, the gym will only handle about 30 families. The school's generator will supply power for the furnace, pump, and water heater, Hopefully, we'll have enough propane to carry us through until things are fixed. Martin cringed. They were still thinking that the outage was just another temporary storm problem to be waited out. His latent Boy Scout wanted to voice his convictions that they all faced a much longer-term problem. The curmudgeon part of him wanted to keep quiet and avoid getting entangled with any new vipers. 
He intended to listen to his curmudgeon side until he glanced at Susan. She motioned with her eyes as if to say, Aren't you going to say something? Martin was certain that he would regret it, but he raised his hand. As much as he loathed petty local politics, he did not want to disappoint Susan. He wasn't sure why. Landers pointed to him. <clears throat> Martin Simmons, Old Stockman Road. I don't think things will be getting fixed any time soon. This outage could last months or more. This sent the crowd to buzzing. Are you with the utility company, Mr. Simmons? Landers asked. Uh, no, but on my way here today I met a utility worker at the substation on Old Stockman. Martin relayed what the lineman told him, with the upshot being that power wouldn't be coming on for months. When he sat down, some people glared angrily at him. Messengers of bad news often take the heat. So that's just your opinion, spouted Dunnan. Others agreed angrily. Martin could feel a blush of embarrassment growing. Vipers. He was certain he should have just listened to his inner curmudgeon. Those eyes are hers. They keep getting me in trouble, he thought. No, it's not just his opinion, said Walter as he stood up. Walter Novel, Haverhill Road. I've been monitoring ham radio since the lights went out, and lots of other folks have been saying the same thing he just did. Walter reported about the nationwide outage. Selectman Mike Wilder had been tapping on a little calculator and scribbling on a notepad while Walter spoke. We don't have months of fuel for the school generator, he said. Eastern propane was scheduled to fill the tank next week, so it's pretty low. If we run it two hours on, three hours off, we've got enough fuel for maybe a week, maybe ten days. That's it? A week? Dunnan and others were upset. He had become the de facto spokesman for a group of youngish couples who sat in the middle rows. And what happens after next week? You just let us freeze? That's up to you, snorted Pete. Candace interrupted. Jeff, this town must do something to provide for its residents. What about the old and the sick? What about the little children? She held her arms outstretched, as if to welcome the poor, the huddled masses. Never mind about the old and sick. What about us? complained Dunnan. We pay taxes in this town. We demand that you do something. You owe us. Pete stood up quickly and faced Dunnan. This town doesn't owe you diddly squat, you panty waste. This ain't some resort hotel where you can demand clean towels and order up room service when you're hungry. Dunnan stood and stabbed his finger at Pete. Listen, you. You can't talk to me like that. I'll sue the pants off of you. Landers continued to try to restore order with his gavel, but few paid attention. Pfft, sniffed Pete. You think this town is like your mama or something? Owes you a warm bed, wash your clothes, maybe cut your meat for you, eh, little boy? Dunnan lunged over the intervening rows of chairs. Pete had time to square up his stance to face the charging young man. Others stood up behind Dunnan, shouting their support. Dunnan tried to grab Pete's clothes, but failed. He took a swing at Pete, but from so far back, there was no surprise to the attack at all. Even though Pete was about a foot shorter than Dunnan, and twenty years older, he easily parried the wide swing. Furious that his first swing didn't deliver a Hollywood knockout, the younger man swung with his other arm, but Pete easily deflected that blow too. Dunnan stumbled on a fallen folding chair. In that interruption, a few of Dunnan's cohorts and supporters succeeded in restraining him. 
But they also hurled epithets at Pete. Residents caught in the middle had quickly scurried aside. A handful of older men took up positions behind Pete, more in a show of support and backup, not to restrain him. By this point, Chief Berg had rushed around the end of the table and into the row of chairs. All right, all right, everybody, just back off. Settle down here. I demand that you arrest this man, shouted Dunnan. I intend to press charges. For what? asked the chief, as he moved aside some of the chairs to stand between the men. Seems to me you are the one throwing the punches. Well, he was disrespecting me. Yeah, that's it. He was bullying and disrespecting. I have my rights. Bullies should go to jail. Nobody's going to jail over a few words, said the chief. Now, everyone, sit down and cool off. I will take away the next person that starts a fight. Understand me? The chief's gaze was firmly locked on Dunnan. Candace stood to act as peacemaker. We should all respect each other's rights, and always in kindness. Her smile was gone briefly as she glowered at Pete, but it flickered back on again. Is this what we can expect from this stinking town? Dunnan said to Landers. This is your meeting. Why aren't you going to do something about this? Mr. Dunnan, began Landers, we appreciate your concerns. We are all in the same boat as you, but... No, you're not, snapped Dunnan. Some of you got wood stoves and wood. We don't. Some of you got generators. We don't. That's not fair. Bet you got a honkin' huge TV, though, sport. I don't, quipped Pete. That's it. I don't have to take any of this crap, ranted Dunnan. If you're not going to deal with this man, then I'll have nothing more to do with any of you and your stupid meetings and your stupid town. Come on, Trish. We're going to go stay with my mother in Wellesley. Dunnan's young wife shot an indignant scowl at Landers and Pete just before the two of them pushed through the chairs and stomped out. Several other couples stood up, too, mumbled angry, inarticulate words, and followed the Dunnans out. Other young couples, still in their seats, looked at each other like bewildered orphans. They might have shared Dunnan's worries and sentiment, but not enough of his zeal to join in the walkout. Candace rose to speak. Jeff, she had to speak loudly to be heard over the thunder of petulant stomping down the wooden stairs. Jeff, this is no way to take care of our citizens. Pete, that was totally uncalled for. Bah, said Pete. I just did you all a favor. You've got big enough challenges on your hands. You gotta figure out how to get through the winter with what you got. The fewer pampered panty wastes, the better. The sort of talk this young guy was spouting concerns me. People thinking everyone else ought to be taking care of him. I'm willing to bet you all are gonna be scraping the bottom of your barrels just to get yourselves through this winter. A bunch of do-nothing mooches is the last thing you all need. Wasn't so long ago, Pete looked over the crowd, this town used to be mostly folks who knew how to take care of themselves, and did so. Farmers, lumbermen, tradesmen. The women were sturdy stock, too. They could butcher and cook a chicken, split firewood, and make clothes for their family. They all knew how to take care of themselves and families without demanding anyone else do it for them. But, Pete shook his head, Every year, more and more of them helpless city folks have been moving into town because rural is quaint. Looks cute in a magazine, but they ain't got what it takes to actually live rural. Young men nowadays couldn't lay up a cord of firewood if their lives depended on it. 
and soon enough it just might. Young women nowadays couldn't cook a whole chicken. Heck, they'd run from a chicken for fear of germs. They think heating up something in a microwave is cooking. Martin glanced back. Susan was cringing with her head down. Most of the younger couples in the middle and back had downcast faces or worried looks. While he imagined that Pete was right enough about city people, he didn't like seeing Susan's feelings hurt. Lander spoke up to fill the awkward silence. Now, Pete, you know I let people talk and have their say, but I also expect them to stay on topic. I don't want another one of those long rants about how things are going to hell in a handbasket, okay? Are you going to say something constructive about what's going on now, or what? Yes, sir, I am. What I was getting to is this. You got two basic problems. One is how folks are going to get through this when there ain't no stores to go buy stuff from. Two is how you plan to handle all the helpless city folk, like the Dunnan character, who will be coming here looking for good food and shelter. Back before all this, I'd hear people say, if the Shinola ever hits the fan, I'll head for the hills. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Cheshire is the hills. This caused a stir of murmurs and heads leaning together to whisper. What, Mr. Chairman, sir, will the town plan to do about that? With a theatrically large nod as nonverbal punctuation, Pete sat down. Chief Berg stared into the distance with a furrowed brow. Martin could guess that he was wondering what his force of three men would do with an influx of helpless and hungry Dunnan types. Desperate people tend to behave disorderly. His resources were just adequate when times were peaceful. An overcrowded shelter of citizens and refugees from the city with nowhere else to go would easily overwhelm his little police force. There would be no extra units to call in from neighboring towns either. They would likely be just as overwhelmed as he was. Candace looked pensive, too. Mr. Chairman, she said, with extra formality, I propose that we establish an aid committee to gather up excess food and supplies and to distribute them to any needy people who find their way to Cheshire. Her broad smile was on the compassion side of the line this time. I don't got that much for myself, said a voice to the right. Who decides what's excess? asked another. This touched off a wave of murmurs. We barely got enough room to feed our family, said a third person. The murmurs grew louder. Now hold on, said Wilder. Before we go trying to figure out how to handle a hungry crowd that isn't here, yet, interjected Pete, yet, conceded Wilder, we need to deal with the people who already are here. Oh, oh, I see. I see what you mean, said Candace with a lilt in her voice. You're quite right. We have people in this town right now who don't have enough to eat or heat for their homes. The aid committee should collect excess supplies from people who have more than they need. This last part was uttered with a scolding tone and a glare at Pete. And distribute them to our neediest citizens. Now don't go putting words in my mouth, Candace, said Wilder. We are not going to go around taking away people's stuff so we can give it to other people. Candace's enthusiastic smile quickly turned into a deeply wrinkled frown. 
You can't just let these people freeze in their homes and their children go hungry. It's not fair that some people in town, she glared at Pete again, have enough food to feed twenty families while others have none. Are you going to just let the fat cats feast while the poor starve? We have to do something. While Candace and the selectmen argued over the pros and cons of charitable confiscation, Martin's mind latched on to a phrase that Candace had used, more than they need. That was how Margaret described their jam supply. She said she was going to trade Jess for a can of tuna. What if lots of people in town had similarly lopsided pantries? Maybe someone out there had a freezer full of venison, but little in the way of carbs. Another man might have a lot of bread, but no jam to put on it. Martin ignored his inner curmudgeon and raised his hand. Landers was eager for some other business than the ongoing debate, so gaveled Candace and Mike to silence and pointed at Martin. Um, what if people sold or traded their excess stuff with each other? Somebody with a lot of meat, but not much bread, could trade with someone with lots of bread, etc. I'll bet most people have excesses and shortages. People could even out their own supplies and be better situated for the long haul. Martin sat down. His face felt hot. Why was he messing with vipers? Go on, said Drew Haddock, the quieter selectman. Uh, well, what if we held something like a market day? People could bring in their extra stuff. It could be like a flea market for food. People buy, sell, trade, whatever, but with each other. What about Monday? Someone in the middle audience asked. And, added Walter, if you held your swap meet every Monday, I could use it as a gathering to update folks on the issues, town business, etc., since uh, there ain't no phones or cable TV. Walter, Haddock asked, Do you think you could give us a radio news update on Monday? Walter nodded eagerly. Martin thought he saw Sally look down and shake her head. This is a much more positive approach, Lander said. But what do all of you have to say? It's your town. Is there any interest out there in having a market day? We, can I see a show of hands? Quite a few hands went up. Okay. Could I have someone make a motion? Mr. Simmons, it was your idea. Martin stood, trying to remember his Robert's rules of order. Um, I move that the town hold a public meeting here this, uh, um, each Monday to serve as an informational meeting where people can buy, sell, and trade goods. Walter seconded the motion. When the vote was called, the clear majority voted yea. Candace and a few of the other younger couples voiced a few nays. From her furrowed brow, Martin guessed that she preferred centrally managed redistribution to the chaos of self-management. Okay, okay, everyone, let's plan to be back here on Monday, 10 o'clock. Tell your neighbors that didn't make it here today. The more people we have bringing in things to trade the more likely everyone will be able to find something they need. Thanks again for coming, everyone. This meeting is adjourned. On the walk home, Martin chatted about some of the extra items he might bring on Monday. After a while, he noticed it was a one-way conversation. Susan stared at the ground as she walked. I've been talking to myself, apparently, Martin said. Is something wrong? Her frown deepened. I'm one of those helpless city people. Oh, don't start with that burden talk again, Martin replied. Well, it's true, she interrupted. I am one of them. 
but I don't want to be. Well, there we go. Democracy in action. It can be a little messy sometimes. If you like the story and how it's going, and you felt like, oh, I don't know, buying me a cup of coffee, you could visit my site at buymeacoffee.com slash Mick Rowland. Both are all one word. Thanks. See you next week.